All right, well, last week we left off in chapter 27, and uh, we were uh, dealing with David, and he kind of went over to the other side (laughs) for a temporary time here with the Philistines, and he was spending the last, some some commentators say a couple years, some commentators say 16 months, among the Israel's enemy among the Philistines. And he was kind of, I guess in modern day vernacular, we would say he's kind of playing a double agent. (laughs) He's uh, checking out what's going on over there, more or less. And he's been telling the king of the the group that he's with in this land that he has been uh, engaging in incursions into southern Judah. And uh, actually the fact is, is that he's wiping out the enemies of Israel. Uh, the whole time. And so he's kind of being deceptive a little bit here. Uh, But as we get into chapter 28, we see that he may have overplayed his hand a little bit here, (laughs) Uh, crossing over to the dark side. Uh, And so we're going to look at this tonight and see how this ends up. The interesting thing, if 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 you think that it's going to end here in chapter 28. We've got three more chapters, remember, after this. and So it, it's not. It's, it goes on and on. Uh, but we'll, we'll come to some conclusion <clears throat> uh, tonight at the end of chapter 28. But tonight I, I entitled it, Finding God's Will Any Which Way You Can. Okay? <laughs> kind of a little pawn there. Uh, and so we want to look at verse 1 there in chapter 28. And it says, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war. So they're ready to attack Israel, to fight against Israel. And Achish, the king, said to David, who David kind of won this guy over, and he obviously knew who David was and knew what a great warrior he was. So he said, well, I'll protect you if you let us hang out over here for a while. And the reason he's over in that part of the, the land is because he's fleeing from Saul. Saul's intent on killing him. So... He figures if he goes in the Philistine land, Saul's not going to follow him there, so that's his game plan. Anyway, the king comes back to David after some time seeing what profitable warrior he is in in his midst. And he says, understand that you and your men are going to go out with me in the army. So it's like the ultimate double agent's nightmare. Uh Uh-oh, I'm going to be fighting with the enemy against my own people, right? Well, verse 2 says, David says to the... Akish, very well, and look at how he answers, because David's been pretty upfront with people, and here he gives this answer that you, know, you can take in any way you want. He says, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army, and then David said to Akish, very well, you know what your servant can do. That's all he says. Now, by saying that, he's not saying that, hey, I'm going to go wipe out my brothers on the other side. He's just saying, you know my battle skills. You know you've seen them. You know what I can do. You've heard um, of how I've done in war before, and I'm very well equipped. And so the king takes that as an affirmative answer, and and he says to David, very well, I will make you my personal kind of bodyguard for life. In other words, if there's anybody that I know is going to be loyal, it's going to be you. Now, that speaks to a lot of things. It speaks to David's character, right? And even after having chances to take Saul out, the man who's literally trying to kill him, 
Remember, we've studied, he has chances to kill him in a cave and in other occasions, and he doesn't do it because he respects the position that Saul holds as king. And so that, that speaks to the character of David himself. But beginning in verse 3 here, we begin to see the, the reasons behind what Saul does in this chapter. Uh, it says there in, in verse 3, Now Samuel had died. You say, well, wait, didn't we read this before? If you go back to, I think it's chapter 25, right? Chapter 25, verse 1, now Samuel died. You say, why is it there twice? He's just restating a fact. He's just restating the simple fact that, yeah, Samuel's dead. That's, that's what the writer is doing here. He's not indicating that he died right now, okay? So he's just recalling the history, and Samuel's gone. And what did Samuel represent? Samuel represented whose voice? God's voice, right? I mean, he was the representative, the spiritual representative to the nation of Israel and to the king, whoever he may be. And remember, in their culture, that the priest even took a higher ranking than the king, per se. They had a, a good perception of, of what it meant as far as the political statements people make, but the spiritual statements people make can have a lot more weight. And uh, would it be to God that our government understood such a thing? You know, it's almost the polar opposite. Everybody puts all their trust in politics today, and politics has nothing to do with the kingdom of God whatsoever. But he says, I'm going to make you my personal bodyguard. And in in verse 3 it says, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. So, once again, it's just restating that, that Samuel was a, a man of faith, that he was somebody that they respected, that it was somebody that they, they missed. And the reason they missed him is because, you know, the, the voice of God is, is really gone there. All right? There's, there's, there's no spiritual input into Saul, their king, uh, his ear at this point in time. And so it says in verse 3 there, And Saul had put the medians, mediums and the necromancers, those who speak with the dead, supposedly, out of the land. And you say, wow, good, good job. Okay, that's, that's a good thing. And the reason that's a good thing is because the Bible uh, condemns that kind of stuff. It condemns trying to get in pe- touch with people from the dead or anything like that. It, the, over and over and over again, it, it condemns that. That's not something that as Christians, surely we shouldn't be involved in. It's a form of witchcraft. It's a form of darkness that believers have no business being a part of. And so he put all these people out of the land. And you think, well, that's a good thing. And so the Philistines, verse 4, you see what happens here. His situation kind of becomes a little more pressing. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at um, Shunem. And they, Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Geboa. So uh, the mountain range beginning there is about five miles south of Shuim and extends south along the, the ridge line there, the plain of, of Jezreel. And so these, these uh, cities, these encampments, are within fighting distance of each other. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at, at Geboa. And it says there... That in verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, 
he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. So here this, remember how this story starts, right? I mean, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody. Everybody wanted him to be their king. I mean, they were just like, wow, this is great. And, and here he is cowering uh, in kind of a stone's throw of his enemies, you might say. It says that he was <clears throat> afraid. He was filled with fear. And whenever fear creeps into your life, that's not a good thing. All of us have been fearful at times, but when fear controls you, that's when you've got to stop and say, wait a minute, what am I trusting in? Am I trusting in the Lord? Or am I trusting in my circumstances? What's going on here? You know, it doesn't mean that fear is a bad thing. God has given us fear as a, as a God-given emotion, right? I mean, if you're, if you're fearful, all of a sudden you have a lot more energy, you have a lot more things you can do. You've heard of stories where people flipped over cars by themselves just because the adrenaline is going, they're fearful of the situation. Maybe they had to save somebody. And so fear is not a bad thing, but when fear controls you to the extent that it takes your eyes off of the Lord and it controls you in a negative way, it's not a good thing. And so it says here that Saul was uh, fearful because he saw the army of the Philistines. That's what he was looking at. And I think whenever in our lives we're looking at the wrong thing, right, we have a tendency to allow fear to creep in and take a hold. It doesn't matter whether it's your marriage, whether it's your finances, whether it's your children, whether it's whatever. You can look at that and go, oh, what's going to happen? You can work yourself into a frenzy if you want to. It's not a good thing. But that's what Saul did here. He looked at the encampment of the Philistines and he thought, wow. Now, some commentators say, well, maybe he knew that David was on their side. Well, it, it doesn't necessarily give us that indication here. Okay, that would be even more reason for him to be fearful because he knew that the Lord was, was with David. But it says there his heart trembled greatly. His heart trembled greatly. And you would think that somebody of Saul's experience at this point in juncture in his life, after all he's been through and after all he's seen God do on his behalf in a lot of ways, and give him second chances after second chances, that this would be a time where he would drop to his knees, right? And go, God, I need your help. I mean, have you ever dealt with people that you think, okay, this is the time. They're in such a fix they could never get out of this. They're finally going to just drop and, and give it over to the Lord. And they don't. They don't repent. They just refuse to do it. And that's who we're talking about here when we talk about Saul. We're talking about a very hard-headed individual. And he just doesn't learn it. And so he's, even though he's afraid, he's fearful, he sees the impending army coming against his, his people, he doesn't know what to do. And he does the one thing that people do when they're in trouble. It says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. So he finally gets to the point where he realizes, Man, I am in a terrible fix here. I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll try this God thing again. See, and this isn't his first time doing this. Remember, before... Before David, he kind of repented. Remember, hey, you know, you know, I know you're a good guy. You could have killed me, so go your way. But then it, it goes full circle again. He's right back to the same antics trying to kill him. See, it's not genuine repentance. It, he may be sorrowful because he got caught. Here he's sorrowful because of the situation he's in. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He's fearful. And see, that's why it's so important, I think, when we share the gospel with people, 
that we do it with a fact-based gospel. We don't need to scare people into the kingdom of heaven. We don't need to scare people with a bunch of talk of impending doom and all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the message. All right? But if, if they're purely just turning to the Lord because they're scared, it, most likely it's not genuine. Because they may understand they're fearful, but they don't understand why they're fearful. They don't understand anything about their sin. They don't understand anything about repentance. You know, I've, when I was a youth pastor, we used to go to youth meetings, and, and sometimes we had speakers that I would just cringe because they were literally scaring these teenagers to walk down an aisle. And then they patted them on the head. Oh, now you're a Christian. Go home. Well, they didn't make any, you know, they don't know what they did. They just knew that they didn't want to go where this guy was talking about hell or whatever. Now, is hell a real place? Should we have that as part of our message? Definitely. Is the judgment of God real? Yes. But our motivation shouldn't be to manipulate people emotionally so that we can get kind, some kind of response out of them. And so here, you see very clearly that, you know, uh, David or Saul is in a very frail situation. And so he cries out to God. He inquired of the Lord. Uh, You know, this isn't a heartfelt cry of repentance. You know, Lord, I'm, save me, I'm just a sinner. You know, it's not that. It's just like, hey, can you help me out? You're the man upstairs. You know, maybe you can help me out here. I'm kind of in a fix. And it says the Lord did not answer him. There was a silence from God. Now, the principle here is very simple. If you reject God's word, he will take it away from you. He will literally take it away from you. And that's what he did here. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 37, it says, And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? You remember this when we went through it? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So this isn't Saul's first rodeo with God. It's not the first time God didn't answer him. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. And then it says this in verse 2. It's very important. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So it's kind of an important principle to understand that, you know, if, if, if we are continuing in our sins and God has not transformed our hearts, all right, there's a lie that, that, that a lot of people believe, a lot of unbelievers believe. And basically, there's a couple, but one of them I wanted to share with you is unbelievers believe that God answers their prayers. They believe that. They don't know Christ. They don't even know God. But I've talked to unbelievers. Well, yeah, you know, I, I prayed, and wow, it's just down, driving down the freeway, and all of a sudden, you know, I was able to remember where to go, or whatever. And you say, well, could that be God? Well, it could be, but I, I don't think God's in the business of answering unbelievers' prayers unless it's a prayer of repentance. Especially when they're so self-centered. And if you're an unbeliever, you don't understand true love, you don't understand forgiveness, you don't understand God, you don't understand your own sin. How could you pray a sincere prayer to God that he would answer? 
But unbelievers believe all the time that their prayers are answered. That's why in the Catholic Church, you have people that go to the church almost every day. What do they do? They go and they pray. What do they pray? They pray the same thing over and over and over. Why? Because they think somehow that God is listening to them and that God's up there accrediting their account. You know, they're getting more jelly beans because they're saying more prayers or whatever. I mean, that's what they're thinking. And it's unfortunate because God doesn't operate that way. And see, that's where here I think Saul is saying, "Eh, you know what, I'm going to do this thing one more time with the Lord. Uh, Psalm 68, verse 18 said, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the psalmist says, the Lord would not have listened. If you cherish iniquity in your heart, you love iniquity. You guard iniquity. Sin. He says, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 127, 28, it says, When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, that's the state of Saul's heart right now, right? He's fearful, he's in anguish, he feels like this storm of impending doom with the Philistine army pressing down on him is coming. It says, then they will call upon me. That's what God says. And that's so true. That's so true. But in verse 28 he says, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. You say, well, why? Why would God be so cruel? Because they don't know him. They're not interested in knowing him. They're just interested in the perks that God has to offer, the protection or the whatever. And so here, Samuel is dead, and he's saying that the mouthpiece of of God, through which God spoke to his people, is gone. And he spoke particularly to Saul. Well, he's dead, he's gone. And the voice of God that Saul would seek at this period in this history of redemption, that voice is no longer there. He doesn't know what to do. He has no access to the word of God. None whatsoever. The direct word of God. That's how they, they received it. They received it through God's spokesman. Um, and you say, well, how would he discern God's will? Well, remember before, uh, uh, Abathar, the, 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 the priest, he was the sole survivor of that slaughter that went on of the, the priests of Nob when we studied about that. And in the, the ephod, in the priestly garment, they would carry something called the Urim and the Thummim. And, and somehow, we don't know how this worked, but these two stones, whatever they were, somehow the priest was able to discern the word of God through rolling these on the ground or looking at it, whatever they did. We don't know. It's just not told to us. Um, but he didn't even have access to this guy because he fled. <laughs> He's with David. So the one priest that is left is not with Saul any longer. So Saul has no, absolutely no access to the word of God because of the simple reason that Saul has rejected the word of God time and time and time again. And that's the scary thing. That's the scary thing when you share the Lord with someone and they hear it and they agree and they walk off and nothing happens. And they come back and you share it with them again and they agree. They don't protest. They hear it. They hear it over and over, but they're rejecting it at its heart. They're rejecting it because they're not responding to it in the way God wants them to respond. You know, it's like the, the child that the parent is saying, take out the garbage. And the kid's standing there. Hey, I said, take out the garbage. What's wrong? Don't you hear me? I hear you. And they just stand there. 
Okay, that's not a good scenario. Why? Because they're not, they're, not, they're not really obeying what they're told to do. They may be hearing, they may be listening, they may be standing there nice and quiet, but they're not obeying. And that's one thing that, you know, another lie, I think, that the, the Bible points out very clearly, that believers believe is simply that God's not interested in our obedience. Believers believe that. Unbelievers believe that, excuse me. They believe that they can go out and do whatever they want because they got this, you know, cloak of grace around them um, from, from God. And so, you know, not only do they believe that unbelievers believe that God answers their prayer, but they believe that, you know, they're not really interested, God's not interested in their obedience. Um, and, and that's kind of where Saul is, is coming from here. He is at a point, it's kind of another cliffhanger, really. Uh, the Philistines are great in number. Uh, is David am- among them? Well, we'll see how this works out. Um, but the Philistines are coming, and Saul needs desperately the guidance of God. And God is silent. God is not saying anything at this point. God does not speak to Saul. And so, really, it's a picture of God giving Saul over to his own devices, to his own, you might say, reprobate mind. You know, you think you're all in all? Well, I'll show you who you really are. He's given Saul over to believe a lie. Uh, If you look at Romans chapter 1, this this clearly, Romans chapter 1, it clearly describes the, the society we live in today. Clearly. I mean, you, you, you can't read this and not think of, well, this is, this is the world. This is the country that we live in. Uh, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. It's not that they don't have the truth. You can go to any hotel and find a Bible. God's word is all over the place. But what do they do? They suppress it. They want to suppress it. That means they want to hide it. They want to hold it down. They don't want to want it to do the work that it desires to do. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. They don't need to be told about God. All right? It's made plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Isn't it ironic that God's power and his divine nature is clearly seen in his creation? And yet, creation is the one thing that this human race, for the most part, hates to its core. They attack it. They don't want to admit there's a God. They want to come up with other ways that the world got here. It didn't happen in six days and rents in the seven. That's ridiculous. It happened with a big bang. It happened with this. It happened primordial soup, whatever. They come up with all kinds of arguments. And then they classify it as science. <laughs> and then they say, well, you have to believe this. You can't teach them anybody else. You can't teach the children anything else. You've got to teach them evolution. Why? Because that's, that's science. That's what's right. And it's directly opposed to what clearly gives us a perception of God's power and his divinity. And yet, 
They're so intent on suppressing the truth, they even go to that extent. They make up stories so people don't believe creation. And it says, these have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And then it says, in the things that have been made by God, clearly is the indication there. So they're without excuse. They're without excuse, clearly. For although they knew God, and this is the important part here in verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, it's a very, very dangerous thing to just know God. (laughs) To know about God. And I would venture to say that most of the world religions do just that. Oh, we believe in God. Well, which God do you believe in? Who is the God you believe in? I would dare to say you could walk into most evangelical Christians today and ask Christians that same question. Do you believe in God? Oh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about him. Well, he's love. (laughs) It's probably about the extent of what you're going to get with most nominal Christians today. Why? Because they're not taught about God. They're not taught about God's attributes. They're not taught about God's judgment, his holiness. What are they taught about? They're taught about God. Well, God is love. That's all they hear from the time they're little to the time they get older. And so their whole idea of God is that he's this, you know, gray-haired old man up in heaven like Santa Claus. Just, ah, you know, let's just have fun. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God of the Bible. And so they know about God, what Romans says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Why? Because they didn't know who God was. They knew him. They knew he existed. I mean, you'd have to be a moron not to know that a God exists. It'd be like walking into a room where there's five paintings and saying, wow, where did they come from? Well, eventually you're going to have to reason that, well, someone must have painted them, right? I mean, they just didn't, you know, pop out of the lawn. There's a painter if there's a painting. If there's a watch, there's a watchmaker. All right? It's very common sense. It's not rocket science. But the world makes it that. It, 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 it suppresses the truth to the extent that people, even Christians, doubt what the Bible says about something as simple as creation. It's hard to believe. And so it says in verse 21, they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Why? Because they're all about themselves at this point. And then it says they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became futile in their thinking. It's, it, 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 has, it has the idea of they, they didn't kind of uh, know what to think. Everything they thought was just kind of vanity. It, it didn't matter what they thought. And then it says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, do you see that? Go into any university today. What do they claim to be wise? They believe some of the most foolish things. It says they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. I mean, it's a sad state when your country gets to a point where If you kick a dog, you go to jail, but you can kill an unborn baby and nobody even says anything. I mean, talk about a mixed-up world we live in. I'm not condoning kicking dogs, but I'm just saying that's the state of our society that we live in. Verse 24, Therefore, 
Because of all this, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonor the bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's what Saul did. He exchanged the truth that Samuel continued to pound into his head or tried to as a representative of God, and Saul wouldn't have it. He would nod and he, okay, well, thanks for not killing me in the cave and let's move on. But he didn't know God. It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped, look at this, and served the creature rather than the creator. So they, they looked at all God's creation and they said, yeah, uh, this doesn't, we don't like this. Because if we believe in creation, there's got to be a God. And if there's a God, he's a lot more powerful than we are. We want to be the ones that are powerful. So we're going to create another story. <laughs> and that's what they did. Where? Here? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what's, that's what's happening to these folks. Okay. Right. No. Right. Right. Well, not only that, but Jesus is God. So, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah exactly. Know right, right. But see, and the good thing is, is that God allowed you to make that connection. Yeah, exactly. See, and that's that's what he does for all those that yeah. that he calls to be his own. And that's that's the thing that we have to see here is that um, that Saul is in this state of of despondency, he's in the state of fear, he's in the state of just overwhelming, he needs some guidance from God, but God is not going to talk to him. He's not going to shed any light on this. Well, we'll see what happens here, but it, it's important that the whole of Saul's life has become a lie. Everything about him has become a lie. Because he has no access to the truth. <laughs> and when you take the truth away, all that's left is the lie. See, that's why it, it's, I mean, you can actually trace the downfall of our, our country spiritually back to when they took Bible reading out of the schools, when they took prayer out of the schools, when they, they, they started stripping God from our communities. It just drops like a rock. Crime goes up. Why? Because there's no respect for anything anymore. Because you're taking the one sole thing that can provide that respect away. God's truth. And so the whole of Saul's life becomes a lie. But you know what? The Philistines are coming. Saul needs guidance. He doesn't know what to do. God is silent. God doesn't speak to Saul. God has basically given him over to a reprobate mind. And he begins to just fall apart. And what's he going to do? He can't go to the prophet. He can't go to God's word. Because God isn't speaking to him, because he's exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Um, you know, the one thing I take away from this 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 chapter is, I wonder if Saul, when Samuel was with Saul, when Samuel was able to come, when he was alive still, and Saul could ask for clarification of something. Samuel would be right there spiritually as a spiritual support to the king. That's what he was for. 
and he would provide God's guidance and God's word and God's comfort to Saul. I wonder if he misses that. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if maybe he took it for granted. Well, Samuel's always going to be there. There's always going to be some, God will always speak to me. I'm the king. Okay? Um, that really tells me a couple things that as Christians, what if God took your Bible away? What if God took any access to the Word of God away from you beginning tonight at midnight? At midnight, from then on, you had no access to this book. Would it mean anything? <laughs> I mean, other than not having to carry something to church on Sundays. See, there's an interesting illustration here. It was back in the 1620s. There was a, a Puritan pastor. And he was talking about Saul not having access to God's truth. His name was John Rogers. And he came from a town called Dedham, England. And he was an early you know, Puritan preacher. And in the middle of a sermon one Sunday, he began to impersonate God in the middle of a sermon, kind of like playing like he was God. And he's pretending to be God, and he's speaking to the congregation of about 500 people. And he begins to reprimand his congregation as if he was God. That they had the Bible, that they had God's word, but they've neglected it. They've taken it for granted. They haven't used it. They haven't loved it. They haven't studied it. They haven't remembered it. And, you know, back then they would have not just a small little Bible. They would have, like, the Bibles that Dave got first over there and the, and the huge Bibles on the pulpit, you know. So that's what he's referring to. He wrote one. Yes, exactly. There you go. And so it's important to understand that you know, he's impersonating God and he lifts this Bible and he begins to carry it out of the building. And the people are kind of like taken back by this. And as he's walking down the aisle, he turns and now he begins to impersonate the congregation. Like he's playing the congregation's part. And this is what he says. He's talking to God from a congregation point of view and he gets down on his knees with this big Bible in his hands and he says this, he pleads. He says, kill our children. Burn our houses. Take away our goods. But don't take the Bible away from us. I mean, when you stop and you think of what an impact this book has on our lives and how often we neglect to even open it. <laughs> You know, and we've all done this. I'm not making this a, you know, oh, compared to whatever. I'm just saying we've all been there. We've all gone for maybe days sometimes. And, you know, I know that to be true because sometimes I find Bibles here. <laughs> sometimes I like to call the folks about Thursday. Are you missing something? No, I don't Why? I just thought maybe you'd be missing something. <laughs> you know, it's just playing a joke on them. But it drives a point home. You know, that how precious... And how much do we really love God's word? How much do we really desire it? How much do we really treasure it? Saul had no Bible. Saul had no access whatsoever to the word of God. God is not speaking to Saul. God has given us a book that contains 66 books. From Genesis to Revelation. 
And all of it is God's holy word. It's God's letter to us to encourage us. It's infallible. And it's able to make us wise unto salvation. It's able to make other people wise unto salvation. That's why we should treasure it. We should love it. We should study it. We shouldn't let it lay on the shelf Monday through Saturday only to dust it off and bring it under our arm to church on Sundays. I mean, I pray that God renews our love, our our desire for the Word of God. Because Saul is really an example. Saul is the, the paradigm of what happens when God removes his word. When God removes his voice. If you reject it, if you reject God's word, God will take it away from you. And that's a scary thought. Well, we also see here, as we go on in the text, that because of Saul's issue without having the word. Um, Saul, in in verse 6, he inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Those are the, the methods that God used to speak to people in the Old Testament. Today, God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through the written word of God. Now, in verse 8, or verse uh, 7 here, he tells his servants. Um, then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium. It's like, oh, really? You're going to go down this road? Seriously? I mean, this is somebody who knows this is a no-no. Sure. No, I don't think so. I think that there was probably men. I don't. The, the ones I'm thinking of were women in the Bible. I can't think of one. Whether uh, in the New Testament, who was it? Uh, Cornel- not Cornelius. What's his name? Yeah, there was somebody in the New Testament was a man. Simon. Yeah, Simon the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer. That's who it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. So no, they weren't always women. That's a good question. So he, he wanted a woman though, who is a medium, that I may go to her. And inquire of her. So he went to the Lord. And, and this is kind of a, another lie, I think, that I want to kind of point out here. Is that, you know, another lie that I think the world believes more so than not. Is that God will listen. That God will respond to our uh, good intentions. In other words, if we just have good intentions... That's, you know, what, it, what, what really matters here. Um, that's what's important. And, you know, just like they think God answers, unbelievers think that God answers their prayers, and they think that um, God doesn't care about their obedience, they also think that, you know, God's not going to punish us, uh, you know, if you have good intentions. We hear that all the time from people. Um, you know, well, I think if, you know, if they're sincere in what they believe, well, it doesn't matter. If what they're believing is wrong, if, if what they believe is not truth, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can believe you can fly all day long. That's not going to allow you to fly in and of yourself. It's just not going to happen. So, you know, it, it's a very important, I think, thing here that we understand that, that Saul is kind of at the end of his, his rope, and so he requests for this this medium. And 
and this is kind of a second principle. First of all, if you reject God's word, it'll take it from you. Secondly, if you reject God, which Saul has clearly done, all you have left is Satan. <laughs> if you reject God, there's no other way to go. You know, it's either you're on Satan's side or you're on God's side. There's not like, you know, a bunch of people in between that, that are less than Satan, less evil than Satan. No. And um, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, it says, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, those who uh, talk with the dead, they thought, who chirp and mutter, kind of mocking them in a way, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living. And it's saying that in a negative way. You shouldn't do that. First uh, Chronicles chapter 10, verses... Um, uh, or wait, is that the right? 13 yeah, 13 and 14. Um, here, you know, David, it, it speaks of, of Saul's death. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. Remember when... Um, Samuel said, hey, don't do the sacrifice till I get back. Remember that? And he went ahead and did it anyway, thinking, oh, you know, I just got to... And then he blamed it on the people where they were getting restless. And then there's another time of his disobedience. And well, here it says that he broke the command of the Lord, but he also consulted a medium seeking guidance. That clearly tells us that that's a no-no. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. And you say, well, I thought he inquired of the Lord. Well, he did, but it wasn't sincere. Okay. He just wasn't sincere in his seeking out the Lord. And, and that's what I mean. I mean, you can see somebody face down on the carpet crying out to the Lord, but, you know, is, is it a genuine repentance? I don't know. That's why we can't be too quick to affirm people when they come to Christ. You know, my, my theory is, oh, hey, that's great. Praise the Lord. And I just, inside, I don't tell them this, but a lot of times I'll say, well, let's wait and see what happens. <laughs> Because I've seen it too many times. You know, people walk an aisle, they pray a prayer, they have this great emotional experience, and then three weeks later, they're back to doing everything they did before, and they have no love for God, they have no love for His Word, they have no love for the, the, the people of God or anything. And so, it, he, he makes this request, in verse 7, seek out this thing, and his servant said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor, so the witch at Endor. And so, Paul or Saul disguised himself, See, he knew this was not the good thing to do. He disguised himself. Now, remember, though, you know, this could have been for a couple reasons. First of all, he was the king. What did he do with all the mediums and the, the necromancers? He put them out of the land, remember? And he probably did it thinking somehow he's going to earn some brownie points with his people. I don't think he did it for God. He, he was probably making a statement more to his people than he was to his God. And so here, he's going to one of these people who are still active in the land, just like Today, when things are outlawed or things are forbidden, people continue to do them. The same thing back then. Saul said, nope, you can't have this in our land. But they still were around. And so they said, he said, go seek one of these people out. And they found a, a, a woman. And so he disguised himself. He put on other garments. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was you know, one of those glasses with a mustache. Who knows what he had on? I don't know. But clearly, he was disguising himself. And he went. He wasn't wearing... The adornment of a king, you might say. And two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. Indicates another thing. He didn't want to be seen. He definitely didn't want his people seeing him doing this. He, he was the one that just kicked them all out of the land. How hypocritical would it have been for them to say, wait a minute. You're, you're saying we can't do this, but now you're going to. 
You know, and that's really what what false leaders, false people who are, are leading people do. You know, they're one thing when the lights and camera are on, they're a totally different thing when nobody's looking. Okay? And so that's what you see here. Saul is this king who's dressed up in all this kingly garb. At night, he disguises himself, takes all that out, puts something else on because he wants to go entertain this medium and see what happens. And it says in verse 8, they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. So you can kind of see his arrogance here. You know, I don't know if he's ever done this before. I doubt it. It's probably his first time going to one of these people. Um, But her response is classic. All right. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. What was that? he, He outlawed it, basically. Okay. In our modern language, he said, you can't do this anymore. So she's saying, yeah, right. You're one of Saul's spies. And if I do what you tell me to do, then you're going to kill me. So the woman said, surely you know what Saul has done. Now he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? So immediately this lady perceives, okay, something's wrong here. This this isn't adding up. And in verse 10, you see the, the response here. It's, it's one of the possibility of her death. She, she was afraid for her own life. Paul swore to her, Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Now, this is Saul talking, right? And he says, as the Lord, he's swearing by the name of the Lord. You know, it's like somebody that cusses and cusses and cusses. And then they say, you tell me the truth. Oh, yeah, so help me God. It's like, Really? You're going to invoke God's name at this juncture of this communication process when you just cuss God out for 10 minutes? I mean, and that's what people do all the time. They think somehow if they invoke God's name, then this is, this is going to be a, a, a positive thing. So he says, as the Lord leaves, no, no, lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Verse 11. So she had, uh, you know, this, this fear. And, and then it says... Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up from you? So she agrees. She goes, okay, you know, let's, let's do this thing. Who do, you want, who do you want me to talk to? Now, I want to say here, these people that did this, for the most part, were shucksters. They didn't have the ability to bring these people up. Okay? They, they didn't, just like they don't today. Okay, you can go to the little, you know, lady that reads your palm all day long, or whoever, um, or even today in the Christian church, the modern-day vernacular, the faith healers, okay? Um, y- you know, I think God has a special place for all those people. But, so, so this lady's thinking, all right, sure, I'm going to get some money here. I'll do this. She says, who do you want me to bring up? And he says, bring up Samuel for me. Now everybody knew who Samuel was. He was a priest. He was the one that just died. They were all mourning him. And it says in verse 12, when the woman... Look, Saul, Samuel. Okay, she had a lot of anxiety here. A lot of things were going on. Why? Because this had never happened before. And this is what she did for a living. That's why I'm saying they were kind of a fake, uh, a, uh, a false 
uh, deal here. They didn't really call up spirits. They probably manipulated people into thinking they did. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So maybe Samuel said to her, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> you, know, you know that's King Saul that's right in front of you. Who knows? I don't know what he said. He must have said something to the woman to startle her that way. And he, you know, unveiled Saul's uh, identity. And she says, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And then in verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? Don't be afraid. I mean, yeah, okay, I'm Saul. Don't worry about it. I already said I'm not going to do anything. Nothing's going to happen. Tell me what you see. What do you see? What do you see? You know, he, this guy is very desperate for some guidance. Okay? And you see this all the time in the world in which we live. I talk to people all the time that are desperate for guidance. Well, you know, what do you think? Of, and they start asking you questions. And I say, well, how you, what are you doing about this? Well, I've been going to a counselor for five years. Was that helping you? Well, I don't know. Does it cost you money? Oh, yeah, it costs a lot of money. Wow, well, you know, um, or they'll, you know, I've been doing this or I've been doing that. or And it's not, it's clearly not helping them. Okay. But they're so desperate. They're willing to do anything. I mean, you look at some of the crazy things people do with some of these, like, uh, like a, a Tony Rob- Robbins, that whole group, you know, they walk on fire. They, crazy stuff, right? These people are desperate for affirmation in their life. They want somebody to affirm them desperately, and they'll do whatever they can to try to get it. And see, this is where Saul was, and so he's even willing to break all the rules and regulations of his own country, his own people, as king, even though he made an edict that this should never happen in the country again. He's going to be willing to do that because he is so, so desperate. And so she calls him out, he says, okay, yeah, you're right, it is me, but what did he say, what did he say? Um, and, and the woman said to Saul, uh, in verse 13, the king, the king said to her, do not be afraid, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. That's a little troubling. Verse 14, he said to her, well, what is his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up. And he is wrapped in a robe. Now immediately, Saul knew that it was Samuel. She was describing Samuel to him. Doesn't go into all the detail here, but she must have described him to some degree. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Just like before. (laughs) It's the same antics he's doing. And I think they're sincere antics. But it's unfortunate that Saul doesn't get it. You know, he's been in this posture before. And, uh, but it's just not connecting. And, and that's a very important thing. There's, there's this, you know, presence of Samuel there. You see her anxiety. You see Samuel's appearance. You see Saul acknowledge that it's Samuel. All right. And, and then Samuel begins to rebuke Saul. Um, Saul knew it was Samuel. He bowed down his face to the ground, paid homage. And he's probably thinking, wow, God answered my prayer. This is great. Verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why do you get me up? Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Some people say, was this really Samuel? Yeah, it was. It was the presence of Samuel. How God did it, I don't know. But he did it. Saul answered 
I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me. And he answers me no more, either by prophets, well, probably because you're dead, or the dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. He's appealing to kind of Samuel's good nature here. It's, it's always worked before. Samuel always kind of relented and gave him, you know, whatever information, even though it was bad information sometimes, that, okay, I'm going to tell you what the Lord said. And so he's willing to go to whatever extent it takes here. And so Samuel um, begins here to, in verse uh, uh, 15 there, to begin this, this rebuke. He says, tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Why are you coming to me? Um, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. So he calls Saul out. He's not going to, you know, oh, poor Saul, put your head here on my shoulder. You know, God is love. No. He, he calls him out. He says, look, we've been, we've been through this before. Sometimes when we're sharing the Lord with people, and I think a, a good formula is we're, we're so quick to share God's grace with people. We're so quick to tell people, well, God is love. God will forgive you. God loves you. It's okay. It's not that bad. Oh, no, don't worry. Well, yeah, it really is that bad. You're on your way to hell. Your heart's filled with sin. You're, you're, you're filled with sin so much you're blind to the holiness of God. You're all about yourself. You need to repent. You need to ask God to help you repent, to grant you repentance. You need to beg God to save you. But a lot of times it's a lot easier just to say, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, and if you just say you're a sinner and then you say Jesus is Lord and he's your Savior and then everything's okay. Just, you know, we can just go and go our own way. That, that makes it a lot easier. It's not as confrontational. But see, Samuel's not having that here. He's, he's putting it right in Saul's face. First of all, why are you here? Why, am I, why did you wake me up? I was having a good time. He brought me up back to this place. And Saul says, well, I'm in great distress. He starts whining. You know, look at, look at all this stuff that's going on, blah, 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 blah. And Samuel's probably sitting there going, yeah, duh. What did I tell you was going to happen? You know, you don't listen to God. What do you expect? So why do you ask me since you've turned... The Lord has turned from you and you be, he's become your enemy. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor. Remember when he said that? Those exact words almost. He prophesied that. And see, that is what is such an incredible thing that God's word, the thing that we should treasure... It's not something that we have to question. It's not something we, oh, what if this doesn't work out? No, God's word is true. Samuel said in, in, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 28, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom from, of Israel from you this day and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. He put that little jab in there. And that was true. And so, you know, you, you, you see the, the, the point here of, of Samuel's rebuke. Uh, he tells him why in verse 18, very clearly. He says, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. 
and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Remember the Amalekites? They were supposed to wipe them out. Well, we don't want to wipe them all out. You know, we, don't, we want to keep some of the spoil. No, nope, we're not supposed to do that. He refused to obey what the Lord said. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Um, and that's what, what is important, that God does care about our obedience, even as believers. Okay, yeah, we're under his grace and our sins are forgiven. We get all that. But don't think for a second that that gives us a license to just go out and do whatever we want. We're not our own, the Bible says. We've been bought with a price. And we need to be reminded about that. And so, as we, we see this continue here, um, he says, Moreover, verse 19, The Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. So, this is going to be punishment and it's not just going to be for you. All right, we're going to, we're going to take this out on, on some people. And tomorrow, you and your son shall be with me. So in other words, you know what? You're going to be dead, is what he's saying. Um, the Lord will give you the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And that's what he's saying there. He's saying basically that you will, you will be uh, deceased. You will be dead. Um, so in, in verse 20 here, you see what happens. Then, fall, then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground. I mean, can you imagine someone coming up to you and saying, you know what, tomorrow you're going to be dead. Just let you know. Let you might like to know. <laughs> you know, I don't think you'd go, ah, let's party. I mean, you would be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be dead tomorrow? See, we don't know when that day's coming, but Samuel did. Or, I mean, Saul did. Samuel did too, but Saul, Saul knew. Uh, crazy, I mean, when you think about it. It says he fell at, at once, full length on the ground, kind of passed out, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And it says there was no strength in him. Why? Because he hadn't eaten nothing all day and night. What happens when you get focused on your problems and you're filled with fear? Inevitably, what happens? You stop eating. You stop drinking fluids. What happens? Your body gets weak. Your mind gets kind of blurry. You start focusing on your problems even more. All right? That's one thing we're always taught when people are in the state of shock, you literally have to force them to eat or drink water. They won't do it. I've been with people. It's a hot day. People are sweating. You know, there's a death in the family or something. You're in this house and it's all closed in or whatever. And it's just, oh my, you know, and you got to tell the people, you need to drink some water. I'm not thirsty. Yeah, you are. I know you don't think you're thirsty. You need to drink some water. So I've seen people literally pass out. They, don't even, they, they look fine one minute. The next minute, they're just boom, horizontal because they haven't, their, their body is not responding normally. And that's the kind of the state here that Saul was in. I mean, he hadn't eaten day and night. And look at the, the medium, what she does. Uh, this is kind of interesting. And the, the woman came to Saul. And when she saw that he was terrified, that must have terrified her even more. Like, wow, I was part of this deal. What's going to happen to me, right? Um, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. I've done everything you want. Verse 22. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you. In other words, you need something to eat. Let's sit down and we'll get you some food. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may uh, have strength and go on your way. 
She's just kind of getting this guy out. I don't want this wrath of God falling on my house. You know, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do this. So, you know, whatever the reason is, she's, she's getting him out. Maybe it was bad for business. I don't know. But it says there in verse 23, he refused. And he said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, so it took all of them, urged him and listened, and he listened to their words, so that he arose from the earth, and he sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house. She must have been a quick cook. And she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. And then she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, and they rose and they went away that night. You know, when you look at this lady's response to Saul's problems, all right, I, I took a gentleman earlier today for a ride and picked him up. He was going somewhere. I gave him a ride, and I said, how's your day going? Oh, it's a big hangover. I'm like, oh, I had a rough night. Oh, yeah, a rough night. I said, oh, okay. He goes, yeah, I had a buddy that died. He told me the story, lifelong friend. He's 54 or whatever three kids and just had a heart attack and died. And I'm thinking, this is so weird going out and, yeah, getting drunk in that way celebrates the life of his buddy. It's just, you know what I mean? It's so mixed up. And, you know, I just kind of, you know, said, hey, you know, I'll be praying for you. I hope you get through this and gave him some information. But, you know, people are so clueless when it comes to responding Sometimes the people in need. And you look at this woman's response. Here is Saul. He basically was handed a death sentence. She was part of the whole process. But I mean, you know, and, and he's laid out on the floor. And what is her thing? Hey, just eat some food. Let me cook you some food. You know, have you ever been around people like that? Oh, just eat some. You fill up your stomach. Everything will be fine, you know. And it reminds me, you know, outside of Christ, outside of our relationship with God, we have no hope. This lady had nothing to offer him. She couldn't say, well, let me pull up somebody else for you, you know, because she'd never done this before because she was a fraud. So she was taken back by the whole thing. The only thing she could do is throw food at him. And, you know, it, it's kind of like eat, drink, and be merry, right? I mean, it's kind of like, hey, you're dying tomorrow anyway. Man, let me cook you your last meal. What do you want? It's like he's going to the electric chair or something. So it's just kind of a, a, a odd response to someone in such a critical condition but you know what she's not a believer either so she doesn't know how to respond so the lesson here basically is for us is that obedience does matter to god clearly we see that but also we see a lack of dependency in saul's life upon god you know he had everything going strong for him he was a strong strapping you know king of now he's here laid out on the floor so weak he can't even eat feared for his life and he's going to basically die the next day and his family the dependency on god is just not there and see that's a hard thing when you're trying to reach somebody for the lord and you're trying to point them in the right direction you're trying to give them the right information and they kind of hear you and they agree with you but they don't bite and you see him in the cycle of life over and over and over again. As many times as Saul had the opportunity to repent and come to know his God, his creator, he didn't do it. And, you know, even when he was given 
a departure date. I mean, you're going to die the next day. You'd think that you'd be interested in some spiritual things. But frankly, some people aren't. They would rather go get drunk in a bar. That's just their makeup. They do not want to think about things. And that's you know, why I read that portion out of, of Romans 1, because I think as believers, it's our task to help people take that veil off the truth and not allow them to suppress the truth. To continue to be that voice in their ear. Hey, you know, God's there. God's there. God's there. 